0: ordinary time this year, this long stretch of ordinary time up to Advent, we've been studying together the Gospel of John. And this morning, this woman caught right in the act of adultery is put before us. And uh, so we are going to try to ask and answer uh, a couple of really important questions this morning. Who are the sexually well-off? Who are the sexually blessed and sexually speaking who is the really good person like how does this actually work you know you you sort of have on the one hand screaming fundamentalists you know just to use an icon and then you've got you know the the more trendy advocates on the other hand screaming at the fundamentalists and what if we could just stop and try to figure out this morning Who really is the sexually well-off? What sits in front of us mostly today in uh, our society, the wider conversation, is the notion that desire and sensuality and feelings and the quest for pleasure, this is what really defines now what's good and true regarding sexual practices. It gets reduced to if you could figure out your most fundamental desires and if you could somehow satisfy them, that that's about the best we can do here. But right in our face today is, and right in Jesus's face is, you know, he has sex thrown right in his face, right? And not just sex, but the, the Greek text is very plain here. This woman was caught in the act. So, you know, the evidence was plain to see it wasn't disputable. So her and this evidence is thrown right in Jesus's face, And it raises the question, at least in in my humble opinion, is Jesus a sexual airhead? And I think we actually kind of have to come to grips with that. I mean, it's a sort of a playful way of asking a very important question. Because I sometimes think we, we reduce him to somehow in the Trinity of persons, he spoke things into existence. And then he was here on earth, sort of in a waif, like, you know, you know, kind of like Sirieu in the, what was that book? Uh, the shack, you know, was he, you know, and then uh, now he's somehow in heaven, seating at the right hand of God. And I think sometimes people do think he's just kind of an airhead. Just this airy kind of person who went around saying things and probably didn't really understand human sexuality. So I think it's actually helpful to wonder, do Jesus' ideas about sexuality stand haplessly in the face of male and female sex symbols, of, you know, cool Hollywood parties, of pornographers, or the latest sex studies from the Kinsey Institute? I mean, in the face of all that, who is Jesus and who is his ideas on this. So, sorry for the string of questions here as we get going, but I just have been wondering all week, is Jesus merely the one who gets us off the hook with God over the guilt of our sexual sins? Or is he the reigning Lord of the universe who actually knows what's right concerning human sexuality? Again, that is a very fundamental question and really just a different way of asking Is he some sort of airhead? And then lastly, I just wondered, is there a faith available to us that could govern our lives with joyful fulfillment? Or is repression the best we can do? Like, this is who I really am. This is what I really feel, but I must repress it. Is that really the best we got in the kingdom of God? Is that life? Is, do you suppose that's what Jesus was offering people? Like mere repression? Like, I know you want to condemn this person, but repress it. Or I know you want to hate this person, but just repress it. Or I know you've got these sexual feelings of one kind or another, and but you just need to repress that? Or is there actually a different kind of life available to us, which is fundamentally joyful fulfillment as human beings, made with gender, made with sexuality, made to actually be attracted to one another and to fulfill one another before the fall? Did you just catch that? Before the fall, made to actually explore and enjoy each other. That's a whole different notion than mere repression. So, fortunately, in this passage this morning, we have Jesus front and center as teacher. Um, he was actually sitting and teaching. And as he's sitting and teaching, they throw this woman in front of him, trying to trap him really into saying something incriminating against the law of Moses. So the religious leaders bring this woman to him, caught in the act of adultery and say to him, hey, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And this is actually a very powerful moment. Literally in this moment, Jesus and the woman, their lives are in danger, literally in danger. If he says just the wrong thing, that woman's dead, like literally dead. And if he says just the wrong thing, he could be dead. And so he doesn't answer. He pauses. Not a bad idea, by the way, for life in general. He pauses. And he evidently begins to reflect and he bends down and begins to ride in the dirt, but they keep pressing him with their questions. And finally he says, okay, everybody here who's never sinned, sure, go ahead. You can stone her and everyone who's never sinned, you cast the first stone. And you know, those of you who are here regularly, you know how much I just think Jesus is <laughs> genius. I just love, I'm a total Jesus freak. This is a genius answer. For in it, he upholds the law. He doesn't say anything negative about the law of Moses, but he limits its enforcement in this case to those who are without sin. And with the woman in mind, he breaks, sorry, with the men in mind who brought the woman, he breaks the power of judgmental hypocrisy. And by the way, I'll have something more to say about this in a minute. It's not just the lips of a seductive woman as the Proverbs had it. Have you ever seen the cover of novels? There's men have seductive lips too, right? (laughs) So this kind of goes both ways, right? I mean, I was trained to never be like alone with a woman in a car or not even get alone with a woman in an elevator or something. Well, these days you can't get in an elevator with anybody. Because, you know, sex goes all kinds of ways these days. And so I find myself alone in cars a lot because (laughs) I'm not quite sure who I can ride with. But he doesn't condone the woman. And he advocates for compassion and forgiveness. But again, you know, us not being ancient Jews, we we would miss this, likely. But you know what screams out of this story? Where the H-E double toothpicks is the man. (laughs) Last I knew, it takes two to tango. And the law actually says, not that it requires her to be stoned. The law of Moses actually says it requires both of them to be stoned. But the man is conveniently missing. Why? He doesn't serve their political purposes. At the end, this isn't really, uh, as far as the Pharisees are concerned, this isn't actually a story about sex. This is actually a story about raw power. And the man didn't suit their purposes for that. But they're using sex as a guise to get what they want going. And so I just, I want to say something here just sort of in public where it gets listened to in podcasts all over America, can we just say, it's time to stop blaming the women. What the heck? I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, come on, two thirds of the world covers them in burkas. They're even covering babies now. Did you know that they're covering toddlers? And there are men all over the world who literally will not be in the room with a woman. That's their way of dealing with their sexual appetites. It's insane. Can't we come to the place where we're not using one another, but in Christ, in his body, in his kingdom, deriving our life from his kingdom and living our life in his kingdom. Can't we, my God, come to the place where we love and serve the opposite sex, not keep having these laws, It just doesn't work. I don't care how much you cover yourself, ladies. I have an imagination. (laughs) Right? It doesn't matter if you make yourself never be in a room with the opposite sex. Your brain still works. And by the way, the Kinsey Institute would tell you that sex is a whole lot more mental than it is physical anyway. And so all of these things, these barriers and things that human beings erect, here's the problem with it. And this is why we get back to my friend, genius teacher, Jesus. It doesn't work because Jesus said, it's from out of the heart of a man that comes that which pollutes, obscenities and lusts and thefts and murders and adulteries and greed and depravities and deceptive dealings, carousing, mean looks, slander, arrogance, foolishness, As Eugene puts it in the message, the vomit of the heart. That is brilliant. Jesus says, Those are the things that come out of the overflow of the heart. There, Jesus taught, is the source of your pollution. Ladies, you are not the source of my pollution, my heart is the source of my pollution. Ladies, guys are not the source of your pollution and the money they might be able to give you or the power or the sense of being accepted or wanted sexually, they are not the source of your pollution. The source of your pollution is why do you need to be secured by a man? Why can't you find your security in Christ and in his kingdom? This is what Jesus is getting at, these more fundamental heart issues. Here's why the heart is so important. Well, of one of many reasons it's because most people will do what they're bent to do if the conditions can be made right. Now, let me say that again. What most people will do, will do what's really their hearts intend to do if the situation or the conditions are just right or can be made right, right? So can't you just hear a country song going, well, one thing led to another, right? And what that really means is, you know, I, you know I, the situation was right. The, the, it, it, this opportunity presented itself to me in, in just the right way. And so I had to follow what was in my heart. But see if what's in one's heart is something different than that to serve and love the other, well, then conditions can present itself for that. So Jesus, at the end, says to the woman, I don't condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So as I said, he doesn't condone what was going on. He tells her, actually, don't sin. So there you go. Amen. Don't sin. Are you feeling me here? Just don't sin. Well, what is up here? Like, most of us will sin before we leave this property. Some of you are going to indulge in gluttony, you know. Others will gossip on the patio, right? I mean, most of us will sin before we get to our cars. So what is up with this? Don't sin. Well, it's, he's, it's not some mere moralism, and he's certainly not going easy on this woman. What this is, is really profound wisdom. It's an invitation to a different kind of life. Life in the kingdom where one's needs are met on kingdom terms. Did you catch that? Like where our needs for identity or sexual fulfillment or intimacy or whatever, where those legitimate needs are met, but they're met on kingdom terms and in kingdom ways, not under the brutality of men to think of that woman. That's what was happening to her. She was routinely being brutalized. I don't have time to go into this, but in, in her culture of her day, she would have had no way to survive apart from men. So she was literally routinely being brutalized by men and giving herself to that because she, in her culture, the, the, she didn't have any imagination for any other way to actually survive. But Jesus comes along and the words don't sin means... Take your life out of a consistent missing the mark of what I intended for you when I created um, females in our image. There was something that was intended for you and you can step out of that which you're living out of alignment with that and you can step into a different kind of life, life in the kingdom. See, Jesus' highest goal for her was not to free her from the clutches of the Pharisees who had thrown her in front of Jesus. Jesus but to free her from her bondage to sin. That was his highest goal. That's what's going on with go and sin no more. So now if we try to ask and answer the question, well, what would Jesus do today? What would Jesus say to our social situation in which there's seemingly an unlimited range of sexual desires that are constantly pushing their claims for liberation and for unlimited satisfaction what would he say today? And I think it would be something like this. The person who makes the fulfillment of their sexual needs the preeminent aspect of their life does not do well in the kingdom of God. Did you catch that? The person who reduces themselves to their sexuality cannot and will not do well in the kingdom of God. I frankly do not want to be known as a leading heterosexual. I, I, I do not want you reducing me to the God-given sexual aspect of my life. That does not define me. What defines me is I am a follower of Jesus and I am trying to derive my life from him and his kingdom and live my life in him and his kingdom, taking the whole being of Todd Hunter, which includes the sexual part of me, and placing it in the wisdom the wisdom of him and his kingdom, his kind of righteousness, not the kind of righteousness that says, ladies, cover yourselves, but the kind of righteousness that actually over time makes us into a different human being. That is a completely different way of approaching this question. So the person most at home in the kingdom puts every part of their life in its place, which is to say second, right? Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom. So everything else is second. And so in the first place, we're always asking with any given appetite, with any desire or longing, we're always asking what is best for God, for his kingdom and for others. That person Jesus taught is free. I, I know, I know us. I know we think the opposite. That if I make myself your servant, aren't I the opposite of free? If I make myself God's servant, you know, Paul said of himself, a bond slave. If I do that, aren't I by definition held and bonded? And and this is a question every one of us has to ask and answer. And I just want to testify that you will find yourself the most free when we take all the aspects of our human life and we put them in God and his kingdom because that person is free and at rest and always safe. The Lord is her shepherd, and thus she has to never be in want. That's the vision Jesus was given this woman. You're sinning because you're in want. You're in want of security and safety and the, the, the capacity to function in the human life of first century Palestine. And Jesus is simply saying, you don't have to do it that way. Plus, I would say, Jesus being brilliant, knows that sex isn't what she really wanted. And that sex is often not what we really want. That what we really want is intimacy. But like standing in front of a broken vending machine, we keep pounding the sex button, hoping that a little intimacy might someday dribble out. And it cannot and it will not work. And Jesus knew it. He is stunningly brilliant. And he said to her, stop it. Stop that sin. Don't don't do that anymore. It's not good for you. It doesn't work, and you don't have to do it. You can find a different kind of life in me. So let's see if we can answer the questions we asked at the beginning. Who are the sexually well-off? Who are the sexually blessed? Sexually speaking, who's the really good person? Let me see if I can give a couple answers. The sexually well-off are the people who are deriving their sense of sexuality from God and his kingdom. The sexually blessed are those who are learning from Jesus what gender and sexuality mean and how they are meant to function in his kingdom. The sexually well-off are those who trust God and his kingdom and Jesus so much that they place their whole self under God's care and are thereby safe and so alive that they're never in need sexually. The person who's blessed and well-off sexually is the person who knows in their deepest being that I never need to surrender my integrity to secure myself or to acquire what is good for me sexually. See, in my opinion, what's called for in biblical sexual ethics is not mere repression and certainly not harsh judgment for those in the grip of this horribly fallen world. Look, I get it. I have my moments of panic where I wonder what the heck, Lord, is happening to us as human beings sexually. It just seems out of control and crazy. But I'm telling you, we have to have compassion. There are people deeply confused, deeply um, Stuck, and it's, they're, they're a victim of this fallen world and they deserve our pity and our help and our compassion as Jesus showed to this woman who was deeply stuck. So what's called for in biblical ethics isn't just repression, not just harsh judgment, but active, creative, positive alternatives to sin, to missing the mark. And that's what you find in the kingdom active, creative, positive alternatives. So for me, I carry this around in my head. I've carried it around in my head for years. Commend it to you if it's at all helpful, but I, these three words come to my mind regularly. Some, maybe every day, I don't know, I don't count. Faith, fidelity, and service. Faith, Lord, I want to be faithful to you. Fidelity to my wife, to my children, to this church, faith, fidelity, and service. Lord, I exist for the sake of others, not for myself. Those three words go through my head almost all day, every day. Faith, fidelity, and service. Faithful to you, Lord. Fidelity to my family and my beloved community and um, service for the sake of others. See, that's active, it's participatory, it's positive, and that's what Jesus was offering that woman. You can stop being brutalized by men. You can sin no more and come into life in my kingdom and it's active, creative, positive alternatives for human life, amen.